if the Old Testament passage that we just heard, Isaiah 66, which is the vision of those who've returned from the exile, if the vision of Isaiah 66 is about heaven coming here on earth, which is really, in many ways, the Hebrew version of what heaven, that God's kingdom established on earth, then the power of the John narrative is that earth is taken into heaven. Listen to the word of God. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the temple, or came to the tomb, and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went towards the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings, wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open up our eyes and our hearts that we may encounter you, the resurrected Lord, in our midst once again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My first job in ministry was while I was in college. I was a youth director at a rural church in South Central Pennsylvania. And these kids, though they were in the country, had a lot of urban issues. We'll just leave it at that. They were a rough bunch. And this was a church that had a Sunday evening service. Right? And uh, that's usually when I had my youth group meeting. And they, they were great. I mean, they were deviant. They were outcast. A couple were criminals, but they were, they were a great bunch. And, uh, and it was a great learning experience, and they really turned around. But uh, we had a special speaker coming to church. And the pastor asked me if I would bring the youth group. And he did that for two reasons. One, uh, he was afraid no one was going to show up. 
for the speaker. And I think secondly, he just wanted me to be there to pad the numbers a little bit. And the speaker was a lay minister who came to our church periodically. And um, there's nothing against, I have nothing against used car salespeople. Some of you, any of you are used car salespeople, God bless you. I bought cars from used, I bought those kind of cars. But remember all the stereotypes you could possibly think of for used cars? This guy was it, okay? And he was loud and he was obnoxious. And I was there sitting with my youth group for a couple reasons. One, because they did bad things during church. That was number one. And secondly, his last name could be, how do I want to say it? It could have an innuendo to it if it was said in a certain way. And the last time he had been there, the kids in the back of the church, kind of like if you remember Animal House, coughing under their breath, were coughing his name in an obscene way. So the minister, why he wanted me to have the kids there, I still don't understand, but I was sitting with the youth group to make sure they didn't do anything wrong. And so he got up there, and he had just been to the Holy Land. He'd been to Israel, and he was gonna give us a talk about that. And he opened his talk saying this, I know Christ has risen from the dead, because I've been to his tomb, and it's empty. And the kids looked at me, and I looked at them, and they just shook their head. They weren't convinced, nor were any of us convinced. Matter of fact, the tomb he went to wasn't even actually the tomb that we think it was Jesus. There, if you go to Israel, if you go to Jerusalem, there is the tomb of the Holy Sepulcher, which most Christians have thought is where it happened, uh, but it's a Catholic and Orthodox site. So actually, in the 19th century, the Protestants discovered a place that they thought looked like could be where Jesus was buried, and that's where the Protestant evangelical site is, the tomb, uh, the garden tomb. Uh, just a side note, the guy who discovered that also may have been Jack the Ripper. So that's just a little side note that you might find out. So that kind of gives you, <laughs> he was an explorer, a soldier, and, and maybe a mass murderer as well. But anyway. now. The resurrection of Jesus defies explanation, right? Uh, for that matter, proof of any kind or scientific or philosophical can't really be made. There are some Christians who talk, kind of talk about we can prove the resurrection, but you can't really prove the resurrection happened any more than you can prove it didn't happen. Matter of fact, my simplistic uh, uh, pastor of years ago said that Jesus is risen because the tomb is empty. Uh, that's as simplistic as those who may be said, like 18th century skeptics, well, no one's ever risen from the dead, so Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. It's very clear that what happens in the gospel is unique. The Bible doesn't claim that being risen from the dead is something that happens all the time. Matter of fact, the resurrection of Christ is a unique event in all the history of the world. But we do have testimony and witness to of the early church. The early followers, they may have been wrong, they may have been deluded, but it's very clear that the early followers of Jesus thought that their crucified rabbi had become their resurrected Lord. And we have witnesses and the faith of our brothers and sisters throughout the centuries, many willing to give their lives for their belief in the resurrected of Christ including several hundred earlier this day, gave their life as bearing witness to the resurrection of Christ. We too gather today 
in the name of the one who conquered death. Maybe we have gathered in skepticism, like Brother Thomas. Maybe we have gathered as people who have found other things to do, like Brother Peter. Or maybe we've come like Mary, trying to find out and figure out what has happened. But nonetheless, we've gathered together in hope. Now, even though the foundation of Christian faith is based on the resurrection, the resurrection stories are strange. How could they not be? I mean, in all the Gospels, they are really very strange. One of the things is, I figured out this is at least my 25th Easter sermon I've preached over my career. And one of the things I think is I, as I, I, I never get tired of talking about it, and certainly I've talked about the resurrection more than 25 times, but the more I think about it, the more I study it, the more strange it seems to me, powerfully and beautifully strange. They are strange, but they're beautiful, and they're poignant, and they're full of pathos and mystery and redemption. In the resurrection narratives of John, there are three or four characters that stand out. And over the next weeks, we're going to talk about those characters. Peter's denial will require restitution. Thomas's doubt will have to result in a rebirth of faith. And even there's something about the unnamed beloved disciple. Now, we, we have assumed over the years, over the centuries, that's John. We'll call him John, but he's unnamed on purpose, I think. Even the beloved disciple has a side story going on here. But maybe the most important of them all is Mary. What about Mary? She is the first witness and the first preacher of the resurrection. The narrative begins with Mary going to the tomb. In John's Gospel, only she goes. It's interesting, why do we go to graveyards? And now I go to graveyards, it's, it's part of my job. That's why I end up in graveyards frequently. But why do people visit graveyards? There's a, there's a, 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 it's a pretty good show that's on Netflix now called Afterlife. It's Ricky Gervais. Ricky Gervais is extremely anti-religion. Okay, I'll, I'll give you that. But the story is pretty interesting. And it's about he loses his wife. She dies, she dies uh, too young from cancer. And it's his grief process. And he actually says that I'm going to do whatever I want to and whatever I say to whoever I want to. And when that wears out, I'm going to kill myself. That's how the story begins. Now, you can imagine there's some very comic moments with him saying whatever he wants to say to anybody he wants to say it. But he's deeply sad and deeply broken and really has no reason to live. And yet part of what redeems him, and I won't give away the story, are these graveside conversations he has with a widow who comes and talks to her husband who's passed. And, you know, we visit graves, I think, to remember. We visit graves to honor. Maybe the greatest speech ever given in American history is at a dedication of a mass graveyard in Gettysburg. But graves help us remember how people were not how they are. The other Gospels say that the women went because they were going to perform a ritual. Several possible rituals could be involved that Jews did three days after the death of someone. But Mary, we're given no reason why she's there. 
in John's Gospel. Now Mary has quite the backstory, and we talked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago. Uh, the tradition has merged Mary with the other Marys, and even have her being the one who anoints Jesus. In John's Gospel, there are two different Marys. What we know from Luke's Gospel is Mary Magdalene was someone who was from Galilee. Magda is in Galilee. She was someone that says that Jesus cast out demons, seven demons. We don't know what that was about, but that's what we know about her. She's one of the earliest followers of Jesus, and she supported Jesus financially. And while the men ran away during the crucifixion, Mary and several other women stayed. So Mary watched Jesus die. So why did she come? Well, Mary did not know anything about the concept of closure. Mary did not know about the stages of grief. She did not know about post-traumatic stress. What she did know was the best man she had ever known, the one who had saved her from her demons, the one that made her feel the presence of God, the one she had given up everything to follow, was dead. He'd been murdered by an act of state-sponsored and religious-sanctioned violence and torture. Maybe she came just to be near him, to ask God why. Maybe she just came for one last goodbye. But she shows up and she finds an empty tomb, which only adds to her state of distress and grief. Now, it's, it's interesting. She goes and tells the disciples, Peter and let's call him John, even though he's not named John. They have a race to the tomb, which is kind of strange. Of all the details, we get the strange details about these two guys running to the tomb. John beats them to the tomb, but doesn't go in. And they have these strange kind of, of encounter. John believes. He doesn't understand, but he believes. Maybe he represents those who find this very easy to believe. Peter doesn't say anything. He looks. And then it says they went home, okay? Maybe they went home and went to Easter brunch. I don't know. Maybe they, suddenly it came too to them that, wait a minute, there was a reason we were hiding. This is very dangerous. We should go back and hide. But the men didn't stay. But Mary Magdalene did. And what's interesting to me is, all right, if I'm, if I'm at this grave and suddenly two angels are there, that would probably freak me out a little bit. I don't know about you. Again, we talked about, I'm not a big angel fan. We have, you know, angels are not these cute little naked things that we see at Hallmark or wherever you see them. Angels in the Bible are these big, primeval, historical amalgam of love monsters, okay? They're, they're kind of these, they're very scary creatures, okay? All right? But it's interesting, the angels, you know, it would seem that Mary, if you had an angel there, you might ask him something, right? You might say, hey, Keep, tell me what's going on here. But the angels don't even comfort her, right? The angels don't even help. And she turns around and she runs into the gardener, or so she thinks. Now, the men ran away or went back home, but Mary stays. And the thing about Mary is her devotion was always bigger than her fear, right? She's the one who stayed 
around the Roman soldiers while they killed Jesus. Not the safest thing to do. She watched him die. An empty tomb was not enough. Maybe it was enough for the beloved disciple. Oh, the empty tomb, I believe. But it wasn't enough for Mary. You see, the power of death and suffering in this world is around us in so many different ways. And there are so many ways to deal with it. We can repress it. We can ignore it. Even some religious groups tell us we need to accept it. But none of these are ultimately satisfying for Christians. Paul calls death the final enemy. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And those who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. For Paul, the resurrection is not only the answer to the problem of death, but it is our response to the suffering and evil of this world. Those folks who gathered to worship the Sarah Leonka to celebrate the faith of Easter, the survivors need the hope of Easter this morning, as do we all. But the idea of the resurrection is not a doctrine, nor is it merely a platitude. But for the New Testament, for Paul and for John, it is a person. Jesus himself says, I am the resurrection and the life. It may have been enough for the beloved disciple to see an empty tomb and say, oh, he must be alive. Mary was looking for the person. This, the same person we are looking for this day as well. The song James Taylor wrote is called New Hymn. And it's an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting song. It's, it's, it was never a hit or anything. But it kind of is trying to capture the religious sentiment of a post-Christian world in which we live in. He says this, We hunt your face long to trust that your hid mouth will say again, Let there be light, a clear new day. When we thirst in this dry night, we drink from hot wells poisoned with the blood of children. And when we strain to hear a steady homing beam, our ears are balked by stiff moans and howls of desperation from the throats of sisters, brother, wild men, clawing at the gates for bread. Even our own feeble hands aim to seize the crown you wear and work our private havoc through the known and unknown lands of space. Absolute and flame beyond us, see the source of dark and day. Maker whom we beg to be our mother, father, comrade, mate. Or find your face and hear our name in your calm voice, the end of night, if dark may end. What are we listening for? What are we looking for? Maybe the same thing Mary was looking for. He speaks her name. And she recognizes. It's in the speaking of her name she recognizes. Now even the fact that she didn't initially recognize him 
just reinforces that the resurrection is a strange event, something not reducible to human conception. But in her name, she knew who he was. But then we have this strange thing where he says, don't hold on to me. Now, I've heard a lot of strange explanations for this. My favorite one was one person speculated maybe Jesus was still radioactive from the resurrection. Okay. I'm pretty sure the resurrection wasn't a thermonuclear event, okay? <laughs> the person actually said, that's why we have this picture on the shroud of Turin, okay? Because it must have been radioactive. I wouldn't bet on that, all right? I wouldn't bet okay? If you have a chance to stop by and see the shroud of Turin, fine. I would not go out of my way to look at it, all right? That's, I think that's not God's style to leave a photograph of the resurrection, all right? So why, why, is he, why does Jesus say not hold on to me? Bill Milliken was a youth worker in Pittsburgh back in the early 60s, and he felt called to go work with kids in the streets of the Lower East Side of New York. Um, in his book, Goodbye, Sweet Jesus, he said, they didn't listen to me until they had stolen everything I owned. And then they started listening to me. But he became very disillusioned because the problems of the streets in the 60s and the intensity and the, and the racism and all the, um, all the potential violence and violence that was going on, he became disillusioned of the state. And even some of the activists said, you know, you are just giving these kids an opiate. And he had a crisis of faith. And he almost lost his faith. But he, he rediscovered it. Matter of fact, Bill Milliken went on to be a, one of the leading um, advocates of alternative ways of helping reach kids in schools, um, communities and schools, which you may have heard of. It's something he started out of this, and he actually served on boards of three presidents. But in this idea of goodbye, sweet Jesus, he said, the Jesus I brought to the city was not strong enough to meet the needs of these kids in the street. I needed to say goodbye to the sweet Jesus that I knew and encounter a living Jesus that could deal with the problems of poverty, racism, and school dropouts and all the other social ills. I think why Jesus says, you can't, don't hold on to me to Mary, is he's saying, don't hold on to the old me that you knew. Something different has happened. And we have to let go of those old concepts. I was your teacher, but I am now your resurrected Lord. And I go to my father so he can be your father. I go to my God so that he can be your God. Letting go of the earthly Jesus, the one we know, and all of us have false images of Jesus. It's impossible not to. We make God after our own image. It's a natural thing to do, but it's also what the Bible calls idolatry. Easter is not a sentiment. It's not a metaphor for rebirth. It's not about caterpillars becoming butterflies. It's not about Easter eggs. Those are beautiful images, and they're wonderful things we borrowed from fertility cults from the pagan world, okay? Which is fun. They're fun. But Easter's not a metaphor. It's about the possibility that God became a human being, 
shared all of our experience, including our death, and God in Christ has conquered death. It means letting go of the earthly Jesus, our idolatry Jesuses, and believing in the one who has conquered death and takes us to the very heart of God. That's what Jesus is offering there. Let go of what you thought I was so that I can take you into the very life of God. Every parting in this life gives a foretaste of death, Arthur Schopenheimer once said. But every reunion is a hint of the resurrection. Mary probably had the deepest understanding of Jesus, and it's to her that's given the revelation that now is given to us. But the resurrected Christ not only gives us hope for the life to come, but takes us now into the very presence of God. That's what allows us to walk through the darkest days. That's what allows us to stare the power of death into the face. That's what allows us to look at the powers of hate and evil in this world, whether they be local or whether they be in the seats of power, and say no. It's what allows us to stand in solidarity with the people who grieve this day in Sarah Leonka, the people who grieve around all graves. It's what gives you hope as you stand by the graves of the people you love. It is what gives you hope as you face your own. We do not merely have an idea or a doctrine or a sentiment. We have a living Lord who will lead us home. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Let us stand and proclaim what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed.